Hello and welcome to the Last Dance After Show podcast. My name is David Villar and with me for the final time on this long journey, the Gerald Instant Offense Glass to my Tony Campbell, it's Sam Fragoso. Sam, how are you doing? Oh man, are we even going to be friends after this? I doubt it. I think that throughout the entire journey that we went through, the sojourn, we laughed, Mm -hmm. we loved, we learned. Right. But all good things must come to an end, and I'm probably just going to walk the earth like canon kung fu and at a, of course, socially distanced six feet. (laughs) Yeah, I'll be righting wrongs like a young Bruce Banner, sometimes turning into the Hulk, sometimes not. Maybe I'll solve mysteries like Murder, She Wrote. I was wondering when that sentence would end. It felt like it was never going to, like, find a period. In the multiverse, Sam, it's still going on. (laughs) Quick recap, uh, overview for us before we leave here. How has it been? This is, like, your your real first foray into podcast for the people listening. How how have you liked it? I've highly enjoyed it, Uh, and I I really have to give an honest, all bullshit aside. I've got to give a a big thank you to you for for allowing me to... uh, spread my wings and, and fly in the podcast uh, world. It's been good. It's uh, eye-opening. What goes on behind to make these things happen is to make this good is, and again, I give you a lot of credit for that, is fascinating. I remember proposing the idea to you and and I honestly had no idea what your response would be. And and I was happy when you're like, yeah, that, that could actually work. And I'm like, I think it could. It's been awesome. It's been really fun. <laughs> The people that we've interviewed have just been great. Unbelievable. Yeah. I mean, this episode, uh, we finish off with Brian Curtis of The Ringer, who's a media critic and a journalist in his own right. And then we also interview, and this was always my hope, was to get a player. And who did we get? We got Bill Cartwright, baby. That's right. We got Big Bill. We got Bill C., the man, the myth, the legend who not, I mean, honest to God, I kept on saying to you and it was kind of a joke and, but it really wasn't. I'm like, you know, dude, if we can get Randy Brown, <laughs> I, I will consider this a success. You know, Judd Buechler, maybe like Bill Wennington. Okay. Now we're getting, you know, the, now this is getting ridiculous. But when I say this uh, in the interview and, and I'm genuinely mean it, like aside from, of course, Michael Jordan or Scotty Pippen or Phil Jackson, But even more than like maybe even Dennis Rodman, Bill Cartwright was probably the player I wanted to interview the most because he was a player, a starter, and then he was an assistant coach later on down the line. So he saw it all from all the angles. Yeah, we got two people who see all the angles in different ways, uh, in different capacities. Um, Before we call them up, are you going to look back on the show, the show that we've done the same way former Bulls talk about Jordan. I'm not saying I'm Jordan, but let's say I'm Jordan for this one. Are you going to be like, yeah, he was an asshole, but look, we did 10 episodes with uh, 15, 16 different people. Well, it's it's kind of fitting that you bring this up now because we, we just both read that Horace Grant is just throwing <laughs> all the shade and putting Michael in the documentary on blast big time. So to answer your question, yes, I will be Horace Grant. <laughs> um, I will be. I've got the emails. They're all there. Yeah, the gripes. The gripes. Sam's weird takes uh, on things that 
many people would find shocking, really. Uh, the same <laughs> you thought you knew, wow, just yeah, prepare yourselves, ladies and gentlemen. Right. I didn't know you were recording all those, especially that whole musician tirade I did. Oh, yeah. Wow. Your, <laughs> your viewpoints on musicians is just... It's a different podcast. It's something. It's something. <laughs> <laughs> how about you? How how will you look back on this? And and by the way, yeah. uh, kudos to you. And I really would have had no issue with it, but kudos to you. And let me shamelessly promote your podcast because it deserved to be shamelessly promoted because you are too modest to do it yourself. Sam's got a fantastic podcast called Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso that drops every Sunday. Most recently, they uh, he interviewed Ted Danson insightful actors, thought leaders. It's fantastic. But for someone like you, who is an established person in podcast and who's got his own thing going, how will you look back at this? Oh, I mean, for one, we got to talk about this documentary in Jordan in an exhaustive manner, the, the kind of way we probably would have done it in phone calls anyway. Right. That we added a bunch of people to the pot and made it really fun. Uh, I'll, I'll look back on that fondly. The one thing, and this speaks to the the page in the playbook that I take from Jordan in my own life and in something to be worked out in therapy. <laughs> but Is not why, getting Luke Longley for the podcast? Yeah, that's, that's uh, I, I'm calling my therapist now. But just, you called me with this idea, and for some reason, I said yes. Sorry, I know why I said yes, but for some reason, I thought, we can't just do five. We have to do ten episodes. 10 episodes of the show, which I totally enjoyed doing because we had this great opportunity to talk to all kinds of people yeah. from all walks of life. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, you know, we had sports writers on like Bob Ryan and Sam Smith, yep. and we had comedians like Morgan Murphy and Heidi Gardner and filmmakers, Adam McKay, Steve James, the Ross Brothers. Unbelievable. Yeah. Um, there's people I've left out. They're all fantastic. You can find all those episodes. But wow, 10 goddamn episodes. <laughs> we really went for it. And uh, to everyone listening, we really thank you for doing so, especially in this moment where you decided to make us a part of your week. Um, this is a most precarious and unusual time. And uh, we did it. We really did do this because there's a fair bit of distraction. Yeah. yeah. There's 10 hours to, to think about something that's not a global pandemic. So... I really do hope, uh, from David and I both, we hope it was helpful, and we do hope you enjoy this final episode. Yeah, it's it was uh, a truly a fun experience, and want to thank everybody who tuned in across the world. Um, it's really fun. One of the fun things I've learned uh, through this is the analytics that you can see about who's downloading where. We're big in Australia. <laughs> and that's like, like, this after the United States, Australia was coming strong. Uh, so thank you. Thank you, Australia. By the way, I like that you look at the numbers and you find that fun. I find it traumatizing. I cannot look at numbers. I really, I, I hate it. But, well, well, let's, let's check back in with me maybe on my next podcast, uh, and, <laughs> and, and where I'll be looking at the numbers and just being like, good God. You know, even without Luke Longley, we, we did pretty well in Australia, which was fun. And then like Ghana and Tanzania, I think, gave us some love. Really cool. Yeah. All, every state except for Alaska. 
Yeah. Really? Yep. There's even someone in Wyoming? Every state. West Virginia was a holdout for a bit. I think there was one person who downloaded it. <laughs> they were a holdout. <laughs> yeah. Oh, maybe, maybe. And you know what? To be fair, they, they might have been somebody just driving through West Virginia. Truth be told, it could <laughs> be one of my family members because they live in Pittsburgh, but shout out to them. <laughs> but yeah, no, that, that's been really fun. And, and, and from the... The bottom of both of our hearts, thank you so much to everyone who listened and uh, decided to take the time and, yeah, share this uh, share this fun little jaunt with us. It's been a joy. Mm-hmm. Now, let's call up Bill Cartwright. Mr. Cartwright, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, this is an absolute pleasure, to be honest with you, to peek behind the curtain a little bit. Um, when... Sam and I decided to do this. I actually said to him, the person that I would be most excited to get for this would be you, because you have such an interesting perspective of the whole thing, of the whole era of, of this Bulls, what with, what with being a player and then a coach. So just to set the stage, if you don't mind, Sam, I would like to ask, you know, it's alluded to in the documentary that when you were traded to the Bulls, you were considered a missing piece, quote unquote. And and then at the same time, you were also being traded for uh, Charles Oakley, who is supposedly one of Michael's favorite teammates. How aware of this chatter around all of this were you when you were traded to the Bulls? And how aware of all that stuff are players in general? Like when you walk into the locker room at that time, is that something you come to learn or how does how did that come to be? Also, thank you for uh, having me on. Uh, this should be fun. But yeah, I mean, that's normal. That's what I understood. It's like anything else. I just being aware of your team, being aware of players around the league. Um, for me, uh, I was the old guy on the team at that point in time. I think I was, what, 31 or two. Oh, ancient. Yeah, ancient. But and, and you got to remember my mindset then, too. Uh, and it's kind of laughable now. But I, I just played nine years in New York. Now you guys, you guys know if you've been in New York, not one single thing is going to bother you after you leave. So I, I wasn't worried about anything. I went to a Knicks situation where, for the first time in my career, I wasn't playing a lot. So I was really excited to come back and play. And we had a young team. We had, at least at that time, I didn't know, but I found out later we had the best player, we had the most talented guy in the league. So uh, it was it was an exciting time, and that that was my mindset. But I certainly wasn't worried about anybody. Yeah. Moving ahead, were you at all in in episode I believe one when you're at the Bulls? Were you at the infamous Jerry Krause stepdaughter wedding? I was. Uh, you know, Jerry and I got along really well. So was I there? Lighted? Sure. I didn't know. <laughs> <laughs> So I, I didn't even know what that was about, but okay. uh, no, I didn't, I didn't, I, I didn't, I don't think I got an invite, but I didn't go. Sure. But do that to what you're saying though, in terms of Jerry Krause and the way he's depicted in this, uh, do you think it's fair? I mean, is there anything that, that they're not telling, so to speak about, uh, about Jerry? Well, look, Jerry Krause was the general manager of our team, not the owner. Mm-hmm. He's not the ultimate decision maker. He's the guy who um, basically, besides Michael, put put our entire team together. 
So Jerry uh, should be, I don't know, maybe they should put a statue up to this guy because <laughs> this guy, the job that he did, there, there are no words. Uh, as far as the imagination that he used, the talent level that we brought in, we may have the best player in the league, but we have the best talent and the team in the league. So this guy should be uh, uh, nothing but commended. Yeah. Was your sentiment about not only having the best player, but the best sort of operation around the team, was that sentiment felt for all the players? Did all the players have the same idea you did, which is, yes, we're a great team, but this organizational structure that we're in is also great. Well, everybody's got their own story as you're, as you're seeing, but, you know, I can just talk about my perspective and the guys that we ended up, you know, with uh, John Paxson and, and getting Horace Grant and getting Scotty Pippen, drafting B.J. Armstrong, Stacey King, Scott Williams, uh, getting guys like Cliff Livingston, Trip Tucker, uh, not sure if I'm really answering your question, but was that universally felt? I don't know. I knew that the guys he was bringing in were pretty darn good. So for me, I, I was very happy. I'm curious, just as uh, someone coming into the league in that 79, 80 year, in your rookie season, I have some of the numbers up here. You scored 21 and a half points, 8.9 rebounds, a block, half a steal. Um, when you're coming into New York, and you went to college in San Francisco, right? That's right. University of San Francisco. Best university on the planet. <laughs> it's a beautiful school. I went to San Francisco State myself. So what kind of player did you want to be in the league? Who were your models going into it? I've always known I'm on my, my each individual player. I mean, you know, growing up on the wall, there were a couple of guys on my wall, Jerry West, and I had two pictures of cream on my wall shooting sky hooks. But naturally, I'm drawn to big guys. Everybody loves Wilt. You know, I was, I was, we were close to the Bay Area, so you'd see, uh, you know, well, not, not really. That's about it. That's about, you know, all you have pretty much are Lakers. So uh, I didn't really want to emulate anybody because I was, uh, I was different to everybody. I, I could shoot from the outside. I could shoot, score around a basket. Uh, I didn't realize it then. I didn't. I, I wasn't ready to guard NBA players yet. Mm -hmm. That was my next course. But uh, offensively, I was pretty, uh, pretty well prepared. Do you think you would have been better suited to play in 2020 than starting out in 79-80? Your game style. Um, well, it's a tough question because um, I'm sure my game style would have been different in 2020. So uh, when I've shot a three, I, I hope I wouldn't have had an idiot coach to say, hey, Bill, go shoot some threes. You're shooting 65% out of the basket, but stand outside and shoot 30%. So I don't know. But, uh, but people have a, pro a tendency to be a product of their what's going on now. So I don't know, maybe. Mm -hmm. Wow. So, you know, in the doc – much is made of Scotty's contract and, and getting underpaid and how cognizant of that was the locker room, how cognizant were you of it and how aware of, I guess, everyone's contract were the players. I mean, I hear interviews now where 
people supposedly, you know, know what the numbers are and was it the same back then? And, and, and was it something that hung over the team to some extent, or is it just, you know, this is business and everyone takes care of theirs and that's that. Look, things happen in the league, and that is not a situation that hadn't happened before. I remember when John Contact got his contract, he got a ton of money, and a lot of guys who signed their contract before him were not happy. Right. So that wasn't an uncommon thing. Mm-hmm. You know, to me, once you sign a contract, you live by it. And when Pip signed that contract, he was thrilled. Everybody, he was thrilled, had a party. So you can't come back with that two month, two three months later and be upset. So that's all on him. That's all on his representation. He's he's grown. He's a grown man. Now the guy who could have rectified that, not uh, Jerry Krause, Jerry Reinsdorf, could have said, you know what, we're going to do your contract over again. But uh, as you saw in the in the tape, uh, he said no. But uh, but that's all on Pitt. It's funny how even. 25, 30 years removed from this, you are still erring on the side of management because you are someone, it seems, based on what you've said, you're someone that says, I'm bound by my word, I'm bound by the contract, and if this is something I agree to, then this is the thing I've agreed to. Uh, now that we have like hindsight and time has passed, and we can see that someone like Reinsdorf, let's say generously profited a fair bit off of Scottie Pippen's talent. Do you think that maybe in that era, managers and, and owners of teams were not totally fair and equitable to their players? You're well, smiling a little bit at that question. Look, could he have gotten more money? Uh, he still made, what, a couple, two, three million bucks back in the 90s? I mean, that's not pocket change. I mean, he still can pay his car note, I think. So, look, it was just that... Depends on what car, I guess. Exactly. So, my thing is that it's some of it is about those guys have a thing, and, and players do, that uh, you can have a picking order in the league. And if you're not making... If you have guys make more money, supposedly guys make who make more money uh, are better players. So the best players should make more money. Once he got his contract and other guys got their contract put out there, he wasn't making the most money. That's something else because you're still making a boatload of money. I'm pretty sure everybody else on the planet would be happy about. So, uh, and once again, look, it's not management. It's being an adult. You're an adult. You made a, you made a decision. Uh, live with it. Stand by it. That's that's what you do. It's tough because, uh, as we've seen, especially in the NFL, but even in pockets of the NBA, um, and it's getting better now. But these kids, you know, they enter as kids. Some of them do not finish college. Most of them now don't have more than a year of college, which is not even a real year of college. Let's be honest. They're just there to play sports. And so a lot of the times you have grown adults in their 40s and 50s brokering deals with kids who've hired representation, but perhaps don't have adequate role models or, you know, folks to look at to say, is this a fair deal? I think things are getting better now, I think you'd say. But I I wonder if you were aware of any of that back then where you felt like, yeah, these guys don't really have all the necessary information to make smart prudent decisions. I think for the most part, 
guys do have representation. They have somebody they trust, whether it's uh, uh, hopefully it's mom or dad or a relative, maybe it's an uncle, a uh, cousin, somebody that you grew up with who's now a broker that you have a sense of normal life so that now when you get your check, you're on a, what's it called? A budget? We have a certain amount of money to be able to manage uh, because it's a certain education you have to go into. Once you get to the league, you, uh, you're you young. You got to learn how to eat right. You got to learn to get your rest. You got to learn how to uh, make sure you're um, you know, you're, you're going to the bank. You got to make sure you write your own checks. Uh, so that's being an adult also. And hopefully you have somebody to guide you through that process. If not, the NBA now has a system put in to where they can help you with that. Hey, look, the, the, the NBA now, they want people to be successful they don't want to screw anybody over so that's that's what it is now but you don't think that's what it was then back in the early 90s uh yeah there was a great sense of that then but ultimately it's uh your decision it's your decision it's your money it's your life something that i've i've been curious about and granted the the difference is enormous between player empowerment now and player empowerment then and Scotty, to some extent, used the injury, uh, so to speak, as a uh, as leverage uh, against the front office. But even then, I'm I'm somewhat surprised at the lack of, I guess, using the 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 power that they had as whether it be Michael or whether it be Scotty, whomever on the team, to push back against the front office. Was there anything behind the scenes uh, about that? I completely take what your point about, you know, you so, you signed a contract. These are the terms of the deal. Hey, it is what it is. But, and, and granted, business was done in a certain way back then. But was there any ever talk about, like, uh, pushing back or, or attempting to force, you know, the extreme example would be to force Jerry Krause out, like, was there any anything like that? Well, forcing Jerry Krause is out, that's, that's not an option. So, um, look, at that point in time, I'm assuming you're talking about the last year, is that Pip, Pip was hurt. Yeah. Pip was hurt. And some people take exception to the fact that uh, maybe he should have had his operation in the middle of the year. I don't know. Maybe, maybe not, but he didn't. The fact that he missed 40 games, he still played 40 games. And when he came back, he played great. That's not uncommon. That's not like a, uh, the guy's hurt. And look, Pip... Great teammate, great player, great competitor. To me, at that point in time, you take him for his word. He's hurt. He's out. He's injured. But he came back. He played great. Played great in the playoffs. We ended up winning a championship. So I didn't deem that. And I don't think any of our, our teammates deemed that either. Uh, because interesting enough, that year, when Pip was hurt, you can think about it. We won 60 games. Us in, us in uh, Utah had the best record in the NBA. Yeah. My thing is, is what's the problem? record. <laughs> uh, one of the recurring themes throughout the documentary is Michael's drive to be great and what he would do to achieve that greatness. And there's a lot of talk about how he pushed and tested people and teammates, uh, often getting in their faces and, and throwing punches. And, uh, you know, according to uh, some of the reporting, the one person he wasn't able to do that with was you. 
he almost knew better not to do that. Was it something you said to him? Was it a tone you set that told him, look, this is not going to work with me? Well, I'd, I'd rather go the other way. Okay. We had this report. And like I said, you could tell any story you want to tell is, you know, so he's barking at Scott Burrell and he punched Steve Kerr, Will Purdue. So I'll just say this, that's the only people I know. So as far as all this uh, intimidating, uh, uh, testing, uh, I never saw it. Hey, look, let's, let's, just, let's just talk about this. Our entire team, we have an extraordinarily competitive team. Okay, players, teams, nobody's got to get in their face and push guys down and berate them. I mean, that's nice to say, but it just didn't happen. Um, we had great coaches, we had great front office, we had the best team in the league, and fortunately, we had the best player in the league to finish games. But uh, all of this, um, uh, this stuff that goes by, by this guy that was verbally beating up guys, nah. I didn't say it. So it's interesting, though. It's interesting to watch, but that's just not reality. So you think all those people reporting that, it's just conjecture? It's stuff they've made up? Well, I saw three of them. I didn't see anybody else. Like I said, you can tell any story you want to tell. But uh, why did the Chicago Bulls win? We had the best starting lineup, we had the best bench, and we had the best finisher. We had the best team. We're not playing golf out here. We're not swimming. It's not an individual sport. The norm in our, in our sport is that the best team wins, and ultimately that's what happens. And even now, where you have really good teams, teams, and then you have the best finisher. So the last four or five minutes of the game are crucial because that's when those guys go to work. I mean, this is entertainment right now. It's good hype. Uh, tells a good story. It's not quite accurate, but it, it does make an interesting story. Let's go back to you again. You were traded and you were there for Doug Collins's last year. Yes. From my perspective, I look at this and I look at the situation that was set up in terms of putting Phil and Tex together on the bench, almost this team of rivals that Jerry Krause had set up. Could you sense that at the time? Did it seem like a foregone conclusion that Phil was going to eventually take over for Doug? Look, let's, um, Jerry Cross's first two hires were uh, Tex Winter and Al Vermeil, which mm-hmm. also gets overlooked in the, which kind of irritates me because Al Vermeil, in case you guys don't know, uh, Dick Vermeil's brother, we had the best strength and conditioning coach in basketball. Uh, Al Vermeil is the only strength and conditioning coach to work in Major League Baseball, football, and basketball on the thing with Michael. They put in Michael's guy who never walked in the building. So, uh, like I said, you can tell whatever story you want to tell. But the thing is, is what was happening at that point in time, Tex was not being utilized, which, and Alvermeer, which upset Jerry Cross very much. That had a lot to do with uh, Doug leaving. Yep. So Doug was pretty much catering the ball to Michael, which Jerry felt that that wasn't going to lead us to win the championship. Doug was let go, and interesting enough, uh, Tex was uh, added, 
and also Al Vermeil. Do you think, I mean, and it's, and they make the point in the documentary about how Phil came in and basically convinced Michael, however you want to call it, uh, to give up the rock, essentially, right? Show the ball, be a basketball player. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> My question was going to be, if Doug Collins stays on, you guys think you pretty much plateau or was the natural progression that you might have succeeded even with Doug? I think what, what we learned was is that uh, you learn a system of play that allows uh, everybody to touch the ball. Instead of you dictating the shot, the movement of the ball dictates the shot. And for a lot of players, a lot of coaches, that offense is formed. Still, inside of that, you can still run basic actions. And also, late in the game, you can get the ball to your best players. So after that was happening, uh, not only Michael, but others had an awakening. And this offense can be pretty good. Right. It was great. It was teaching. And fortunately, we had, like I said, great coaches uh, with, with Phil, with Tex. At that time, we had Johnny Bach, uh, who was a great defensive coach, uh, Jim Clements. And this is also humorous to me. The Chicago Bulls are not a offensive team. Hmm. They're a great defensive team. So everybody talks about the triangle. What won us games was the fact that we got stops. Yep. We were a great defensive team. Yeah. So it's all of that's just really interesting to me. Right. Because a lot of playoff games, we didn't score 100 points. I hear you. Let's move up to when Michael retires for the first time. What was the sense in the locker room? Was it more of a, hey, we're going to show the world that we can do this without him? Or was there a sense of doubt amongst the team even though, granted, you're not going to show that to the media or to anyone because, you know, you're a basketball player. Like, you're not going to show any weakness. So what was the attitude the first time that he retired? Was there doubts? Sure. There was always doubt when he was there, let mm -hmm. alone when he leaves. So uh, now you got to remember, that was a little confusing because we had just come off our third championship right before the season starts. Yeah. He decides he's going to quit. We thought that was a lot. Really, you kind of had summer with a little heads up. But anyway, uh, we had a meeting with Phil, and Phil said, hey, Michael's going to retire. Guys are just going to have to do more. That's all, to be able to handle it. But we handled it. You know, Phil handled it great. Uh, we had a veteran team. So I, I thought our guys were outstanding as far as just being able to take on that challenge. You know, we're disappointed. Uh, he decided for whatever reason. We're still not unsure. Maybe you guys could tell us uh, <laughs> why he decided not to uh, not to come back. But like I said, we're a veteran team. Uh, we can handle it, and our, our guys were fine. We played great that year. And the guys that had their best year was probably Scotty. And uh, the guy that really showed everybody they could really, really play is Tony. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, if you can't tell us why he left, I can promise you that we will not be able to tell. <laughs> Did you and the team have a sense that you guys could win a fourth title that year? Did that seem realistic to you? Yeah, we had played great. We had won 50-plus games. We played great. We're still guarding great. So yeah, we were right there. We uh, It took a seventh game in New York on a questionable call to, to beat us or, or, or we could have got back. So, you know, we played great that year. We played the best we could. 
obviously if we would have had MJ, we could have won that easily. But he wasn't there, and uh, yeah, we'll take it. You know, we'll take it with the effort that we that we put in. There's uh, a lot of talk, and it's a pivotal moment in the film uh, that you're in about this Pippin game in '95. I'm sure you've been asked about it a lot. Well, maybe here and there. Were you surprised that Scotty said that he would have done it again in the documentary? Well, that was his mindset at the time, and. Uh, have you known when he knows? I think that that's a bunch of crap. There's no way he does that again because, because he had played great all year, and uh, and he made a mistake. Pip is pretty heady. I mean, there 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 are no words for what he did other than I don't know, brain fart, uh, really bad. But uh, if he would do it again, and I was there again, he may get a hit in the head with a chair to have to worry about it. So moving ahead to when. Um... You become an assistant with the Bulls, and at the end of episode three and the beginning of episode four, Dennis Rodman wants to take a vacation, and you're an assistant coach at this time. Did you agree with Phil's decision? What was your, how did you react to that situation? You know, Phil always handled Dennis really, really well. Phil and Jerry, because I assure you it was both of them. So basically you knew one thing, you had to give him something something was going to keep his mind occupied and with something other than basketball. So uh, I, I think that the amazing thing is that I would doubt there's another GM and coach on the planet that would have allowed him to, to do that. But he did. He made it back. And, uh, and we were fine. Now, you got to understand that that wasn't the first time he took off or the first time he missed practice. He missed plenty of those. But uh, Phil, did, Phil always did a great job. But tell him, hey, look, we're just going to spake him when he gets in. And uh, then we'll, uh, we'll get back to business. The way he behaved off the court seems the exact opposite of the way you behave probably off the court to me. You guys seem like diametrically opposed personalities. <laughs> well, I'll tell you what, he's a great guy. You know, he, he really is. He's a great guy. Every, all of his teammates love him. Uh, he's only a detriment to himself, you know. So he likes to drink a little bit and carouse, and uh, that's his mindset. But the thing that's interesting is that he, he's never let us down during the game, ever. And uh, so if you've got a guy getting 15 rebounds a game, uh, playing great defense, diving in the stands, if you want to win, and, and you've got the teammates to support that, yeah, you take a chance. What were the biggest sort of psychological and mental shifts within the team between that first run in 91 and then the final go in 98? When you're comparing those two teams and, and really those two periods in time, when you're putting them side by side, what are the key differences you see and felt? Well, the key differences is old and new. I mean, that was fresh cut grass out there. I mean, we had just beat the Pistons, just figured out a way. It took us two years to overcome those guys. And interesting enough, it was almost a blessing in the sky because they they gave us a formula for their team and what we needed to be to win. So a lot of people are unhappy with them. We should be we should be thrilled with them because they they helped us get us in the right mindset to win. But uh, everything was new. 
we didn't know anything about going into playoff games, about championship series, playing with pressure, having uh, uh, fans show up um, like if we're traveling, play the Lakers. You have 300 people showing up at two o'clock in the morning to hang out and welcome the bus. So, so all those things, those experiences we had never had. But by our last year, we had tons of camera people every single day from all over the world coming into practices. It was just uh, uh, being a young, fresh rookie to, uh, to a veteran. You know, unlikely as it seems, is there anything you might have learned about this team or the players or coaches or anything from this documentary? Well, it just gives you an idea of how really good we had it when we were there. And I'm talking about uh, being able to get veteran, really, really good players on the team to get guys to stay on your team, for one thing. that Guys can't even do that nowadays. They have their best players leaving. But just being able to get quality players on teams and then now having a system to play in. And, and like I said, we were a great defensive team. You're not going to have any teams now playing the same system for six years. Uh, their system is going to change. Our system stayed the same, with maybe the exception of San Antonio with Popovich. Everybody else changes every single year. So, and like I said, people can like the triangle or not like the triangle. Uh, triangles only won 11 championships, including the Bulls and 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 the Lakers. So. Yep. If you were coaching, would you maybe look at it a little bit? Yeah. <laughs> a little bit? Possibly. Since maybe the only team that had that kind of run was like Boston Celtics, maybe the same type of offense. Right. Well, what's interesting about that, though, is that I think it's been since then a little bit vilified, and that might be a strong word, but... You know, people have thrown the triangle to the side because basically they say, well, look at what Phil tried to do with New York and stuff like that. And it's like, well, but the players that he had at that particular moment, obviously they're not as good as your uh, Bulls or the Lakers, but it was also not even remotely close. So, you know what I mean? I think it gets unfairly vilified. Well, you need talent. Right. Talent to win. Also, what did the Knicks do? The Knicks were giving up about 110 points a game. Yeah. And that's what I said when I went out there. I said, the triangle's fine. It'd be nice if they got to stop out here. <laughs> Bill, I'm curious because you're actually in these games um, for most of this documentary. Uh, every good player, every good team has said, oh, if, if, if the ball just went this way, if one call went this way, we could have won this series or this game could have turned our way and we could have played a game seven. And, and, you know, there's a lot of talk about what could have been and what never was. But I'm interested just as a competitor and as someone who played professional basketball, coached professional basketball, has observed great basketball, what were the teams and who were the players that you felt as a competitor, oh, they're fantastic? They're they're singularly talented. Well, there's a lot of teams that we played against that were of championship caliber caliber teams. Especially when we played Utah twice, we could have easily have lost to uh, to Phoenix. Portland had great talent. 
the Knicks had a potential to do that. But look, we, for them, they were lucky because we were at a time, it's almost a Tom Brady-ish type of time where we had this, we had this formula and we had the same basic foundation of players together to where your team was pretty good, championship caliber, but we are the champions. Did that answer that at all? Yeah, it does. And in a very simple, um, straightforward way, it does. We're very lucky because we had special guys with special players, with special coaches, with a special GM and his staff. So we were just very, very lucky. Yeah. We asked Sam Smith this, and I have to ask you as somebody on the inside, trying to be as objective as possible, which is impossible, which version of the Bulls was the best? From the championship years. What teams were the best? Uh, meaning, was 91 better than 90? I mean, you know, of course, 96 gets all the love because of the record. But Sam made the comment that he thought that 91 was the best version of the Bulls ever. And I've heard other people say that 92 was the best version of the Bulls ever. What's your humble opinion? Well, what I should say is a team that won freaking uh, 72 games, that's what you should go with. But? But look. Every team, every championship team is going to tell you we're the best team. I don't know of any championship team that's not going to tell you that. Right. And it's, but, you know, to be safe, you should say 72 wins. Uh, that was the best record ever. Let's get dangerous. So that's the safest answer. But, uh a champion is a champion, so well, I don't know if you can answer it. You said that uh, throughout this this back and forth here, you've talked about how you can tell any story you want, and this documentary certainly has, that it's been entertainment. And while it's been entertaining, it has not been entirely true uh, in its uh, presentation. Of course. So I'm curious for you, Bill, at this point in your life, which part of the story do you think is going untold? That's the easy part. What goes untold is that in my six years at Chicago, I had over 30 teammates. So in this decade that's being featured, it's, it's, it's the players. The players, right? It's Al Vermeil. It's, it's Jimmy Stack who's in there and Clarence Gaines. Where's Clarence Gaines? This is our team. This is what we live with every day. This is like our family. You know, you have one basic version, one person version of what happened. It's humorous for us to think that we're going to win a game because George Carl was insulted. Humorous to me, really? We just won 72 games. Maybe we're pretty good. Our whole team. My thing, I'm a team guy. I love our guys being acknowledged. I love the guys that were in the office. Chip Shaper, Albert Mio, Eric Hillen. So that kind of acknowledgement for our team. Our players, we're a team. That's all we want. But this film is definitely told through the lens of Jordan. So on the subject of Michael, we were talking about the differences between 91 and 98. But on a personal level and as, as a teammate, did you find that the more famous he got, the larger sort of international celebrity that he became, did you find it harder to connect with him as a human being, as a fellow teammate later in your run? Well, you know, as a player, 
you're going to kind of gravitate towards people like your own age and stuff that you do. And I, I remember maybe Michael hanging around with Ron Harper a little bit, maybe BJ some. So not not a lot of guys, a lot of media, but maybe not a lot of guys that he, he was great friends with. So, uh, but that's that's normal. The more championships, the more attention you're going to get. By by that second stretch, especially when he came back, he had uh, uh, two, three times more attention, especially internationally. We're going to take an interesting turn here, and you're hopefully you can humor me. Uh, I'm a basketball nerd. You have, and I'm always fascinated by unorthodox shots, and you have one of the most distinctive jump shots in NBA history. How did that come to be? What is the history of that? No idea. <laughs> it just happened. It just happened. That's not something you go home and, uh, you know, you talk about, you think about, you're like, mm, I'm going to, no. You know, it just, it just happened. And, uh, and it's almost like when you do shoot it, you, have no, you don't even realize it until yeah. afterwards. So uh, it's not something to be tried at home. You <laughs> probably injure yourself. Just uh, just do what you do and, and, and be safe. Do you still shoot like that? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm still okay. <laughs> oh, man. I, you know, I like how you said about um, when you go home, it's not something you've discussed. It's not, you know, you, you and, and your wife and your kids have probably not talked about your jump shot extensively, the origin of it. But... We're in such a different age for basketball and, and these players and the fame that they receive now than they did back then. What was your work-life balance in the 90s? Because in this documentary, Jordan's family, for some other reasons, are basically non-existent. And, and Jordan has even said you know, that he did put the game before everything else. What was that relationship like for you between playing on the court and going home and, and being a, a family man, a person? There's sometimes where you're you're gone. You are gone, but you're playing. But when when I'm at home, I'm just pretty active in my kids. I have uh, three boys, Justin, Jason, James, my daughter, Kristen. They're all athletes, played. Uh, they all did a great job in school. And, uh, you know, you just try to play that role, be a dad, you're at home. Maybe if you're lucky, you get to a school play, uh, maybe get to an open house. Uh, it's not too thrilling, but you go, take some pictures, and uh, and then maybe you can uh, sneak in on a basketball or a baseball game, which is not too thrilling either. I don't know if you sit through a baseball game in the rain. That's not too much fun, but you go. So uh, that was important to me. So I was really lucky. Great wife, my wife, Sherry, who took care of all of that, uh, carpooling and all, that nightmare. So mm -hmm. I had a great mom and great, uh, great wife. I, I, I didn't really worry about it, but that was more my focus. When you went to your kids' basketball games, did all the parents ask you for like tips and pointers? No. Those kids wanted to, uh, those kids play. They want to do what everybody else is doing, to shoot the ball every single time they got it. 
Uh, <laughs> the typical kids. And did you tell your kids you got to play defense? That's the only way we're going to win. Yeah, Mike is normally played pretty good defense. And, uh, you know, the teams we played on, they were normally great teams or good teams. Uh-huh. You know, to be able to go to the kids' game, is, it's, it's, it's fun. It's fun. But there's always controversy. Uh, um, but, uh, but, but they're kids, and somehow they get through it. Well, I appreciate you getting through it through all those years and, and making so many uh, championships possible and being part of this team and coming on this podcast. It really uh, was a joy and honor to talk to you, Bill. Well, thanks, guys. I, I appreciate you guys having me on. You know, I, I, I think that the big thing is that, uh, you know, when I left the Knicks, uh, I was really for, very fortunate because uh, every single team I had in Chicago was a winning team. It, I was really a part of those five championship teams. So I was really very, very excited, very blessed. Even if it doesn't come off in a documentary, everything is like great. <laughs> so it's kind of interesting that way. Uh, it's a great time of our lives. Uh, hopefully that, you know, you wish it could happen again. I'm not sure it's going to, but uh, but this but this is a time to celebrate. And hopefully they'll end this documentary the right way with the celebration because all those guys, they didn't quit playing. Michael didn't quit playing. He played two more years, right? Played two more years. He didn't win. He went back to the same coach, played for Doug Collins, but he didn't win. Phil went on to win five championships. Scotty Pippen played, Horace Graham played, everybody played. Yep. And they they were fine. So it was the last dance for the Bulls, but it wasn't the last dance for our life. And, uh, but that time was a great time. Bill Cartwright, thank you very much. Well, sir, thank you so much, Bill. Good job. Have a good one. Thank you, sir. Well, there you have it. Our conversation with Bill Cartwright. Not only a player, a starter, a champion, and also an assistant coach during that Bulls run, which was quite the treat for us. Up next, we are interviewing Brian Curtis of The Ringer. He's the editor-at-large there and also the co-host of the Press Box podcast, which I cannot recommend enough. Stick around afterwards for a few final thoughts from Sam and I. So without further ado, let's call Brian Curtis. We need the Bulls, uh, 90s Bulls intro here to really make this feel like the... You know, we we could probably just put it in because at this point, <laughs> is anyone coming after copyright? I mean, who I get, who so. cares? Alan Parsons will come after you hardcore, and <laughs> as will the project. Not even so much Alan Parsons, but the project. Okay, on, on Alan Parsons' behalf. Mm-hmm. Uh, Brian, how are you doing? I'm fine. How are you guys? Doing well. We're, I guess, trying to pick off as much meat off of the last dance bone <laughs> as much as possible. I uh, know. We're in the final moments here. Yeah. We were pre-gaming a little bit. That sounds like we were drinking. We weren't drinking. Um, I was drinking. It feels like everything has been covered at this point. Is there anything to you as a reporter that you think, oh, I wish that was talked about a little bit more? I mean, I read an interview with Ahmad Rashad today about his reporting methods, and I feel like... We just read it right now because we of you. We just read it. <laughs> I feel like that's something I hadn't heard. Were you impressed by his strive for objectivity and <laughs> consistent journalistic practices? Um, he's everything I wanted him to be. I'll just put it that way. You know, um, I didn't... It's funny because back in the 90s, we were so innocent, right? It's not like Ahmad Rashad had a Twitter account or, you know, or Instagram, right? Mm-hmm. So you just see him and he seemed really friendly with Michael Jordan. 
but of course you didn't know that he was driving to the stadium with Michael Jordan right. or hanging out in the training room and while the other reporters were getting kicked out. That was amazing. Yeah, the Jim Gray story was was the triangulation between Jim Gray, Ahmad Rashad, and David Stern. <laughs> amazing. It was incredible. Amazing. I'll quote from the piece. It's in The Undefeated for those who have not read it. One time they were playing in Utah and Jim Gray came into the training room and Phil Jackson walked in and kicked him out. Jackson said, hey, 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 no meeting in here. You've got to get out of here. And Jim Gray looked over at me, me being Ahmad Rashad, and said, what about Ahmad? And Phil Jackson, without a beat, said, Ahmad's family, your media, get the fuck out in front of the whole team. <laughs> Jim Gray went back and told David Stern, and David called me. He goes, oh, God, he complained, he complained. Maybe if you go in there again, sneak in the other door. I don't want to tell you that you're not supposed to be in there. But it had been like five years. I've been going wherever I want to go in there. Um, and then there's a little fun Pat Riley story. But, wow, what a time to be a, a journalist in the 90s. Yeah, just just to be clear, there are some of us who, if you said, all the media get out, but you kind of not media person stay in would be offended by being in the second group. Right. Right. <laughs> but he was not offended. No. Would you be offended if you were him? Would you rather be a journalist or Jordan's friend? No. If I had to choose, <laughs> I couldn't be both. <laughs> um, I think I'm going, I think I'm going with journalist. I really am. That sounds like a lie, but you know, I wasn't going to accuse you of it. I think I would have been aired out on a 10 hour documentary. You know, if I had been, Michael's friend, journalist. I just wouldn't have been asked to appear in the documentary. That's probably what would have happened. You know? Well, we were trying to go through the why Ahmad was considered family. And, and obviously they're friends and they're family friends as they talk about in the interview. But he was given this kind of unprecedented access. But David and I were talking. I'm curious about your thoughts, Brian. He was given all this access and it's almost like he had the access and he maintained the access because he never did shit with the access. Is that fair? Yeah, I mean, I think it was, for one thing, there wasn't really a place for that stuff to go in the 90s, right? Like Ahmad Rashad was television, right? You know, not like Michael Jordan was going to be aired out on the NBA on NBC. Mm -hmm. That just wasn't the way those kind of things worked. But yeah, no, exactly. I think discretion was was important. And especially in that sort of second stage of Michael's career, right? When he's kind of done, you know, he, he could still be a good interview. He was doing all of his press availabilities. It wasn't like he was ducking out a ton, but he was kind of done with the media to some extent at that point. So I think the price of, of that kind of access was that you were, you were going to leave a lot of things unsaid. Where are you at with the relationship between athletes and journalists right now? Obviously there's no sports, but hoping this all comes back. Where are you at with that? I think it was funny to watch The Last Dance because you see, though it, they don't really highlight it all that much, you see the path to where we're getting now, right? The 80s where a journalist can walk into a locker room, and I don't think I'm simplifying this that much, Magic and Larry would kind of be right there. Mm -hmm. And that didn't mean they were going to be absolutely happy to talk to you at all times, but they were kind of gettable and available. And then the Bad Boy Pistons happened, Michael happens, the dream team happens, and all of a sudden there's like 50,000 people in an NBA locker room. And this idea of intimacy, even if the athlete wanted intimacy with journalists, it's done. And it was never coming back. And, you know, that had probably already happened in, in the other sports, and the NBA might have been the kind of last one to get there. 
but it looks to, to me, it's like everything we have now when we're like, oh, wow, there's just no way I'm going to be able to get to these guys unless you're a handful of very select people. I think that all starts in the nights. I wonder if it's because he was a football player. Yes. He's coming from that world and he was never in awe or competition as a basketball player. And so in that sense, he was a peer, but not, and he could speak on those terms. That's kind of my working theory right now. I think that's right. He had total credibility, right, as an athlete. If you remember sports television in that period, there weren't a ton of people, right? It was like a small kind of group of people. So if you had one of those jobs, you were pretty big. (laughs) So this was not the Mm -hmm. bazillion channel Instagram universe that we're in right now. Like you you were were big and you, you had some sway in there for sure. Plus the racial implications, which is what he talks about in that interview, where there really weren't many people that look like him for sure doing that job. By the way, I, I was flipping about it earlier about him. I don't want to uh, undercut how important that was. It's just funny looking back on it. You cannot be a good journalist and be that close to someone, I think. For, for the most part, maybe there are, there are some great examples in history that one of you two could cite to undercut my point, but I, I think it's really, really hard to balance those two things. Well, and it's television, right? So the whole idea of journalism and sports TV, where you have a network that owns the rights to the NBA, right? Journalism is, is not, not there totally, but it's not the only or primary function of a thing like that, mm-hmm. right? So it's just different. Like the biggest disaster for NBC was if Michael Jordan didn't talk to the network like he didn't talk to Sports Illustrated. Right. If Michael Jordan said, you know what? I'm not doing any more post-game interviews with you guys. That would have been a huge disaster or pre-game interviews. That would have been really bad. So, you know, the TV is always balancing those things, right? It's about access. It's about a financial relationship. And then it is also probably secondarily about journalism. Well, the, you guys, uh, and for those that, might not know this, but Brian hosts a wonderful podcast called The Press Box. And you guys talk about this often in terms of the relationship of ESPN being both the journalist, uh, in quotes, as well as the presenter of what they're covering, so to speak. Yeah, to, to what you're saying with M- NBA on NBC, it's just can't happen. It just can't happen. You can't you can't wreck the golden goose that, you know, that you're putting forth. Yeah. And that was always the role of print guys. At that point in history of newspapers, to just to pick at that scab, right? Uh, you know, and to be like, oh, we're the pure ones here, right? We would never do anything like that, not like those TV guys. And whether that was true or not, we will uh, <laughs> take a big audit to kind of figure out. I feel like you're the person who would write that audit. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if anyone's asking for it, but no. if someone's going to write it, it's going to be gonna, Someone would have to tell me I can spend uh, you know, a couple weeks doing that, which is not, not totally clear. You, you talked about what Jordan was kind of foreshadowing, starting with the 80s Celtics-Lakers relationship between locker room and players, and then the bad boys Pistons, and then Jordan becoming this sort of international commodity. Mm-hmm. On the other side of this pandemic, should it all continue as it was before it. I'm interested about your kind of prognostications of where that player empowerment takes us. You know, I go back to, you know, Simmons, Bill Simmons, for people who have not listened to it, doing his multi-interview with Kevin Durant. It was basically a six-part Netflix docuseries that he did. And he did not really receive, I don't think he should have, by the way, he did not receive the kind of criticism that Rashad did 
doing that sunglasses interview with Jordan. And I think part of this, and this is what I'm, I'm curious about, is that Durant and many people have decided to take the narrative in their own hands. And Jordan didn't have all the tools to do that then, but it seems that's where we're going uh, moving forward. He had him on. Yeah. yeah. He had him on. <laughs> you know, and he had like a big coffee table-ish kind of book, if I remember correctly at the time. But yeah, like an athlete, if that, an athlete wanted to do that, it was kind of a book. That was kind of your chance. And with Michael, of course, it was it was Gatorade commercials, Nike commercials, right? Those were telling mm-hmm. the telling his story for him. No, I, I don't think we're going back to the old world. And I think it's just going to go further into this new world, right? Where there's just less and less. I mean, the, the thing is at, at the bottom, this is all about power, right? Like in those old days, it wasn't like, well, athletes love reporters. No, right. but they recognize that reporters had these big, powerful instruments. And to some extent you needed those guys for your own brand, though we probably didn't call it that at that point in history to sell tickets yeah. <laughs> right to get a big tv contract so that more money would come to the players like all that stuff was all mixed up and that that power balance doesn't exist in that same way anymore mm. and you know i don't i refuse to believe we all just became really bad in the last 30 years you know it's like oh you guys suck unlike those nba writers in the 80s no i just think the power dynamics completely changed and they just don't need us anymore People say that the reporting has gotten worse. I don't believe that as a as a blanket statement. No, I'm saying, do they? I've not. Heard, I guess I'm not. I haven't heard much of that. You'll hear people from that era say that sometimes. You know, right? We were we were good, so that's why they talked to us. And you know, I hear that grumble once in a while. Sure. I'm trying to think. We had Bob Ryan on for the first episode, mostly jovial. Sam mm-hmm. Smith less jovial. Oh, that's interesting. <laughs> How much do you think the thirst for sports during the quarantine? helped the duck in people's eyes rather imagine if there was no pandemic would would the takes on this be snarkier would it have gone from an a grade which i think it's generally at uh right now in the general consensus and maybe maybe considered like a b minus at worst yeah i i don't think you would have seen the gratitude for the last dance and we said this on the press box the other day i don't People thanking ESPN on Twitter. I, it's not something I really saw a lot over the last 10 years we kind of saw with this. Um, you know, and it, it will be really interesting to go back and look at this at a different point if, if people do. And I'm not, I'm not, I don't know how much people will revisit like a 10 part doc, right? But to go back and be like, was that as good as every, was that, was that truly an A grade or was that kind of a, you know, a kind of, hey, man, we, we'll take it, you know? Right. <laughs> it's awesome. And I could see that going either way. It's funny. It's not even just the pandemic. Sometimes things come at the right time in the take cycle, right? The weird, mm-hmm. the weird example, this is only because I've been in, in a house watching Star Wars with my kids for the last two months, but we were watching The Force Awakens the other day. I was like, that movie came at a right time, right? It wasn't the Star Wars prequels. It was kind of what everybody wanted. So it got a really, it got a better grade than perhaps it deserved at the time, right? And people don't realize that with a lot of things like movies and docs and stuff, it's timing, you know, this is an extreme, giant, awful public health example of it, but I just think that's true generally speaking, too. Yeah. No, The Force Awakens is is horrible. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> but remember when it came out, I was like, Star Wars is back. No, it's just a funny thing to say. No, I do remember that, and and uh, we've been talking on the show about the timing and serendipity of this team. It really, the puzzle pieces of, of, of Rodman's background, Jordan's background, Pippen's background, 
Kerr's background, especially in this last episode where they explored the mutual loss they had, it's all about timing. But I have a question. It almost felt like that team was serendipitous in a way that the way modern NBA teams are assembled now, it feels much more calculated. It feels much more people at a Excel spreadsheet putting numbers together, moneyballing it. For sure. And there was there's a couple of things that are funny about the the assembly of that team, right? One is that the players were employees <laughs> and considered employees of the Chicago Bulls, which to me is one of the most mind blowing things about the series, right? Yeah. yeah. LeBron James didn't like his GM. That GM would have already been gone. I still can't believe that. I mean, I've repeated it to multiple guests, and and we interviewed Bill Cartwright, and he had the stature at that time, and they could have he could have ousted him. I think he could have, but I think. Broadly speaking, the media reception of that would have been much different than it is today. He would have been seen in a lot of ways as exceeding his mandate as a player. Oh, we're letting the players take over the team. I think that would have been, for a lot of people, kind of a weird area for him to go into. If LeBron did that now, if there were a GM who wanted to break up, I don't know, like the Miami Heat after he won the two titles there, and he tried to oust him, I think the media would have LeBron's back. I don't think they necessarily would have, in, in the same numbers, have had MJ's back. I mean, do you think LeBron basically pushed through that invisible mindset that i guess sports society or you know general society has towards the relationship between owners and and players and whose side are we on and and lebron said screw it you know because he was the villain he he did turn heel when he went down to miami he did and he paid a price like mileage may vary on the price but yeah no i think he did i think that's a huge data point on the timeline right and i think just about everything lebron james has done has <laughs> gathered more power at least for superstar players yeah and we just don't view them that way anymore you know and and you look at the 90s and that wasn't the case even mm. with michael jordan yeah right we're not talking about yeah. horace grant here we're talking about michael jordan and this idea that you work for jerry kraus in some way like, what? Yeah. That's wild. I will say, by the way, let me push back a little bit on Sam's uh, theory uh, in terms of... Thank God we can go back to pushback. Yeah, well, that's what I do. Counterpoint. <laughs> Brian, you should see the show. We get seven minutes ahead of something else. David's like, no, no, no. I'm oh, not no. letting We're him not off. Done yet. We're yeah, not lest, done yet. Lest we forget. No, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I was going to say, like, in terms of the calculation and whatnot, and... The Golden State Warriors got lucky in a way. I mean, they got lucky. It was good planning. I give them credit. But without that smoothing of the cap or the lack thereof, when they upped the cap big time, they would have never been able to get Kevin Durant. And that is just a all sorts of forces. And then they were going to go after Dwight Howard before that. So there was this kind of, you know, certain things had to happen that, that kind of fell into place. Certain things certainly happened. And, and that is if Kevin Durant had a proper competitive spine, he wouldn't have gone to the Warriors. I'm joking, obviously. He's one of the best players ever. Love his game. I don't know, Brian, if you want to comment on this. I was going to say, here come the takes. Wow, we're, 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 going, we're going way off here. Here's yeah. my take. I mean, look, God, in the absence of basketball, all we got is, are these takes. Um, you know, something that happened in those Simmons interviews, um, and I've listened to him a few times, I thought Simmons did a really good job. He did such a good job that he revealed an amount of Kevin Durant that I probably didn't want to know. Mm-hmm. And in fact, the more I seemed to understand his ethos or whatever, I did think, yeah, the criticism's kind of fair. I think the criticism of him leaving and going to the Warriors, I know that's a, been a belabored 
beleaguered uh, subject, but my God, it, thinking about Jordan and this doc, it does feel like we don't have someone in that same spirit as Jordan. And Durant being as great as he is, I don't know, that has always rubbed me the wrong way. I will say this one thing about Michael Jordan, and I didn't hear this, this uh, contrarian take. You know, Jordan was so mad at Scottie Pippen for delaying that surgery mm-hmm. before the final season, right? And said, you know, you you cost us and you put me in a bad situation. That was not a team first decision. And I'm always always thinking of Scottie Pippen's <laughs> viewpoint, which let us say was not absolutely uh, represented in this doc. Um, and I'm kind of like, now, now, Michael, just to remind you, you walked away from basketball after we won three times. <laughs> you quit the NBA. You didn't have surgery and then come back later in the season. You left. Yeah. And of course, Michael can leave or whatever, go play baseball. No, I'm not like, I, you know, gonna, gonna take him to task for that. But like the double standards to me and the whole Jordan was a true competitor and everyone else is not argument. It's totally fair. Wild. I love that. I love that. You're right. And I'm, I'm going to admit I'm wrong on this, but I'll offer um, he's just the best storyteller, Michael. Yeah, he's just the best storyteller. It, it, it's he's full of shit, <laughs> but it, he's it's like a Gatsby-like story. I mean, he's just it's nonsense. He builds in stakes and villains that do not exist, and I do believe he is aware of his own mythology. And I think he was aware of it. We keep quoting this thing from from 1982 in the Wall Street Journal. A 22-year-old Jordan says. I want to be the best marketed player. Mm. Again, imagine being 22 in the 80s, a black kid, thinking, you know what I want to be besides the best player? is the best marketed player. And guess what? He was. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, but yeah, no, that's, that's totally right. And the story, who was your favorite fake villain from The, uh, from the Last Dance? as created by Michael Jordan. Cause I, I was for a while, I was in the George Carl got mad at me and re- snubbed me in a restaurant. Oh, yeah. That's great camp. So therefore I played hard in the finals because George Carl made me mad as if I right. wasn't going to go beat the Sonics. Right. Anyway, I was going to take this finals off, but since he made me mad at a bar, <laughs> how dare you? How dare you? Well, that's a good one. David, you got one. My favorite villain is gotta be, what is it? John Michael Wozniak. Um, who comes out the victor uh, while playing quarters uh, oh, right. with the silver perm. Was I mean, the star, of, was the low-key star of this whole thing. Absolute <laughs> legendary meme. I mean, just... Absolutely. Speaking of hot takes uh, for a clunky segue, I know I am after thinking about this. Are you surprised uh, Trump didn't enter the last hands fray considering we have... All of these follow the bright, shiny object as pandemic gets worse or in the United States and, and his job, you know, looks worse and worse. I'm almost shocked that he didn't in some way, you know, make a comment about Obama being only a f- former Chicago resident or or something of that nature. <laughs> I, I, I really am like it's. Yeah, that that is kind of an upset, you know, if we'd had odds before this thing started. Right. I think the answer <laughs> may be that Trump is not a huge basketball fan. All the more reason. I mean, right? I, yeah, to just kind of get in, get involved in a weird way. Yeah, yeah. Has that ever stopped him from from opining on any other subject that he's not an expert on? No, but I just like just in terms of like, was he sitting down watching this night tonight, which seems to be very key to Donald. I don't know, but to Donald Trump's social media strategy, right? It's not like the seventeen minute lag between the Fox and Friends segment and the tweet, right? Like we. You kind of need that for, for him to be weighing in. I'm just not sure he was watching this. Yeah. There's no way he's watching it 
because if he had watched it, he would have had to demonstrate an unbelievable amount of restraint. And there's just no way that's possible. So I don't, I don't think he watched it. I really don't think he watched it. No. And in, and Jordan didn't cross as far as we know, right. Did not, did Jordan have a Donald Trump moment? And it's like, not, you know, Mike Tyson, all these other guys did obviously Vince McMahon and stuff like that. But I don't, I don't remember a Jordan Trump thing. No, I think he was busy doing other stuff. Yeah. Oh, they were both doing other stuff. Okay. Busy. <laughs> But yeah, I was I was talking about Jordan. Yeah. <laughs> it's hard because you uh you guys said I think it was um yeah, yesterday. On yesterday's episode, you you believed that the last dance in many ways served as Jordan's memoir. And I thought that was a really succinct way of putting it, an accurate way because that now that we're doing these kind of closing thoughts, the thing we come back to, or at least I've come back to is is it is his memoir. He is the most interesting figure in all of it. And he probably would have been no matter the film. But it is interesting how the surrounding pieces aren't as fascinating. They didn't get their punches in. They didn't They didn't shine the way maybe I would have liked them to. Yeah. So that's it's the exhilarating thing about the movie, right? We have Michael Jordan right here. Yeah. With whiskey next to him, just telling stories. And like, when do we, we haven't gotten that. And it's, on the other hand of the other side of the coin, it's the limiting thing because it goes as far as he wants to go and then it stops. Right. I mean, I, I was shocked that like Dave and I were talking about this yesterday, but I was shocked that there were so few great quotes from anybody else. Like I just don't have a memory of anything Phil Jackson said in that movie. Yeah. You know, Scotty a little bit more because he had to kind of face up with a few things, but I don't even remember what Scotty said. You know, it's just kind of like, it was very much a Michael Jordan show which to me why it really did feel like his memoirs. Like, I'm going to get the final say on everything. Yeah. And Phil Jackson, I mean, there's no shortage of interesting things for him to say. He's a very smart, no. interesting guy. And I wanted more of him for sure. No, and I think, you know, if you read the Jordan Rules, and you guys just said Sam Smith on, so if you, but if you read the Jordan Rules, like Phil Jackson was, was running a kind of game separately from Michael Jordan a lot of times, right? And he was very intimately involved in like, how do I get the best out of Michael Jordan? You know, how do I speak to this guy? How do I get him to like think about his teammates in a different way and, and all that stuff? And that was not really in there. Um, you know, it kind of, if you just watch this movie, it felt like Michael Jordan was this great self-directed player, you know, self-sustaining <laughs> villain discovering player, which he certainly was, but you didn't really get that part of it. Yeah. You are a noted uh, Cowboys fan. Uh, yes. Not about, <laughs> about noted, but yeah. Well, at, at least self-noted. Condemned. <laughs> <laughs> we had a roundtable of filmmakers on one of our episodes, and I, I posed the question to them, what would they like to see? And I actually posed the question, and I've seen it bandied about on Twitter and other um, places as well, about there should be a 90s Cowboys uh, version of this. Do you think that can be made or is it something that we have to, we like Jerry would have to pass away or it's too salacious. Yeah. I, I think, um, you know, Kevin Clark, our football writer at the ringer, one of our football writers was the one who first said that to me, or I saw him say that on Twitter, you know, this would be the kind of next ultimate sports doc that we all need. Um, I, I don't think that gets made. <laughs> I really don't. Or it, or it gets made and, you know, we we have like, you know, footage of Troy Aikman from 1992 talking, right? Like, you know, just, 
for one thing, there's just a lot more people to get on board. There's not like a central, as soon as Michael Jordan's in, right? Scotty's not going to say no. Dennis mm-hmm. Rodman's going to be in. Phil Jackson's going to be in. With that, you know, there's just a lot of people that are kind of at odds, right? Jimmy Johnson, Jerry Jones, Troy Aikman, Michael Irvin. There's also a lot of just off the field stuff in that that is not in Michael Jordan's life in quite the same way. Like, well, he talked about how he liked to gamble. Well, actually, you know, Cowboys was going to be a little bit more in that folks. <laughs> not playing cards was the problem, but in a way it really is. And to me, it's like, it, they're very similar stories in the same, in the way we perceive them now. And um, I had this conversation with Michael Irvin one time and I said, you know, in the nineties, it was like, Oh, those Cowboys are great, but mm, we're going to shake our heads. It just did all their off the field behavior. And then, the off the field stuff became part of the legend of the nineties Cowboys. And Michael said to me, he said, you know, the same thing happened at Miami when we came, you know, people come with the plane, the fatigues and all the stuff at the university of Miami. And then that, and that was seen as awful and reprehensible. And then that became part of the legend of the hurricanes. Mm -hmm. And so I think they've been on the same arc as Michael Jordan in a way, but yeah, I, I would, I would not bet on that becoming a, you know, an ESPN. 10 night event anytime soon. Well, I hope you're wrong because I would really like you to be the Dr. Todd Boyd of, <laughs> of that doc. And yeah, I would, I, I, the Mark Vansel, I mean, just pencil me in somewhere, right? <laughs> I want to count. We're going to have to do something about the background here, but yeah, <laughs> give me a nice plush couch and I'm ready to go. And, and, and of course, some bourbon um, or whatever your cocktail <laughs> choice is. Do you, is there a subject that you would like to see? Is there something that, uh, that would that would also be ripe. It can also be in a form that would make for a, a truly great film. It doesn't have to be ten parts. I will say I haven't seen it yet, but the 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 fact that ESPN's doing the summer of ninety eight, I think is. I mean that just talk about things that are <laughs> rich you know, in all kinds of ways. That's amazing to me. Um, and and getting Mark McGuire and Sammy. Now we'll see what they say because those guys have been kind of at, let us say different places in their journey about what happened in nineteen ninety eight. But, you know, if you do that, if that film is done right, it's an interesting movie because, one, that was such a big deal right at the time. I mean, yeah. that just the world, I mean, I was in college at the time. I just remember the world stopping so we could watch Mark McGuire's at bats. And they were always on television live. We'd just be sitting like, wait, Mark McGuire's batting? We didn't know, you know, we didn't know the game was on tonight. Um, that was incredible. And also just a kind of media reevaluation of that period, right? A lot of finger wagging, right? And we talk about how Michael Jordan was perceived so differently and how people would have had his back differently at different time. Talk about that, the PD stuff, man. That is that's one that's, you know, I just feel it's flipped completely. And and what we do instead of showing the uh, iPad with the interview, we would show the iPad with the guy with the column people wrote in 1998. And you just the journalist would have to read it and then and then we and then we get Mark McGuire laughing, you know, kind of like George. <laughs> That was a tactic that yielded some pretty great results. That was amazing. That might have been the single biggest, the best idea in the whole doc. was like, I'm going to let, let the subject watch this and then respond. It was unquestionably the best idea in the whole doc. I, I thought that went into some interesting territory. Uh, you said that, you know, we're reevaluating Jordan and, and our perception of him both then and now. What has been your perception of him in this moment? Like I was when I left him. If not, I don't, I don't know how much attention I paid during the Wizards era, if that's even gets gets an era label. Um, but yeah, it's about where I left him, I think. And I don't, and, and to me, that's not unhappy. You know, I mean, that's just, he, he, that's what he is and what he was, which is like, that's, that's Michael Jordan. Yeah. You know, and I don't, 
I kind of wonder about just, you know, Wright Thompson, that great piece about him a couple of years ago, which really got at his interior life. But it's just because that, that to me was always the amazing question about George. It's like, what's Michael Jordan just doing on a daily basis? Right. Not watching summer league tape, right? So he's just like, but what, what's, his, what are, what's in his mind? What does he think when he watches NBA players today? That kind of thing. I forgot about that piece. What was he doing? It was a lot like this, you know, but it was, it was the first time we'd really heard that. You know, it was around the, I can't remember, it was, I guess it must have been after the Hall of Fame speech because it was Michael Jordan turned 50, right? That was the occasion. Mm-hmm. I believe so. To what you guys were talking about before when you're talking about he's such a good storyteller, I think part of his, his storytelling uh, gift is actually his absence. I think is the, the it only adds to the mystique and the, the myth-making and trying to be as effusive as, like, say, Magic Johnson or somebody of that ilk. But I, I think he's aware of it, and I think he like he's just like, yeah, well, let me let me hang back a little bit. Yeah, and it's you realize like how spoiled we've been with Magic and Larry because they've been. <laughs> I feel they've been telling stories forever. Yeah, and happily for us, or even like Shaq, Barkley, right? Because they're on TV, you know, right. every week. These guys just kind of are around and available, you know, and and he hasn't, and it's so striking with him because like, what's the other great athlete from the last from the '90s on, or even the '80s on? Who's just not available in that way? Is there anyone until he until he started coming out and doing more? It was it seemed to be Tyson, but then he basically blew those doors open completely, and you know, for God's sake, he was on Broadway. Yeah. Oh, he's he's uber available. <laughs> he's he's telling he's told the, the stories are now. I did a piece at Grantland years ago called "Donating Your Body to Sports Writing," and it was it was him and Lance Armstrong and Pete Rose. Because they would just be out there confessing their sins over and over again. <laughs> and somebody would be like, wow, what a raw interview. Be like, yeah, I just read, but weirdly, I just read another raw interview six months ago. And guess who's on ESPN this weekend? Mm-hmm. Lance is back. He's still, I we're know. still confessing, you know? God. And it's like this thing where, you know, it's an interesting relationship because if you're a writer, podcaster, whoever, he's like, you're like, this is great. I got Lance Armstrong on here talking about the ways he screwed up and his regrets and all this stuff. And, but it's just a cycle and it kind of never ends. In like last year, maybe a year and a half ago, Quincy Jones did that great New York Magazine interview. Incredible. And then like two days later, there was a, like a GQ one and they're like, hey, look at the GQ. It's like, all right, well, I just read. I may have switched the order up. But I remember the New York Magazine one was better. Um, but I remember thinking like, this is the same, this is the same thing. And then um, this is just, on a personal level, I, I invited him to come on the show I do called Talk Easy. And we had this is Quincy Jones. Yeah, Quincy Jones. And and he had previously been like down for it. <laughs> and once that all happened, we were given He was overexposed. Yeah, we were given a polite, it's just not the right time anymore. <laughs> <laughs> it's just funny how we tip into, man, I'd love to hear from that guy too. Okay, okay. I okay. Got yeah. Well, it's like you want the weekend with the friend. You don't want the week with the friend. Right. Yeah, I'll have you over for a weekend, John, no problem. But it's Wednesday now. Can you get the fuck out? I think the I think we can all agree the person that we really want to hear for and to to your question, Brian, the nineties icon is, that we all want to hear from is Luke Longley. Um, oh my gosh. Although I did hear he was he had beef. I he has some sort of beef with Jordan. So I, I do want to know more about that. That That is kind of something that <laughs> I'm not sure if you guys are aware of this, but tonight there is a Stephen A. Smith after the dance uh, one hour special. I'm not even sure Stephen A. Smith is aware that's happening. Yeah. 
But I mean, I would like to get the Peter Vesey. Believe it or not, Luke Longlake is apparently I'd like to know what this beef is with Michael and Jim. Well, Jim Gray was interviewed, but Marv Albert. Uh, I didn't. Was Jim Gray on the show? I wasn't sure. So I'm, oh, I didn't see that. Uh, we could do a whole doc with the people that weren't on the show. Yeah, that's what I want. Bob Bryan, right? You know, like all these people. See, you mentioned him. Um, can I can I say that I met Luke Longley like you two can. years ago? I was in Melbourne. Oh, and I was there for a couple of months with, with family for various reasons, and I was trying to do ringer pieces, right? Like, what can I do here? And I was like, oh my gosh, Luke Longley, and he was great. And he came out, and he's he kind of didn't do interviews for a while. He was kind of not into talking. He lives very remotely out in Australia, but he came to Melbourne for like a team, an Australia team thing. And we sat down and we had a coffee and he has a big, thick red beard now. And his hair is much bigger than it was in those scenes from, from especially the late term Bulls thing. It's like Letterman. Yeah. And he was awesome. He was funny and very, had a very good sense. Kind of like uh, Judd Buchler and Will Perdue and those guys doing the doc. Like he knew exactly what he was. Yeah, uh, mm -hmm. with the Bulls and was totally happy being that guy. Totally happy. So you didn't sense any sort of uh, discord between him and Dusty? MJ? MJ or whomever. Like, look, he was on the floor for more than even like Judd Buchler and yeah. Bill Wennington and those guys. So, like, He was. Yeah, no, I mean, he didn't. He wrote a very little read in this country memoir, Luke Longley, that one of my Australian friends gave me, which I'm eternally happy that that happened. By the way, go look it up if you can. Um, <laughs> And he talked, you know, very honestly in there about what it was like to play with Michael and how, you know, some of those kind of things we've heard from B.J. Armstrong and Steve Kerr and those guys. And But, but like them, he seemed at peace with it and was like, I got to win a bunch of NBA titles and, you know, yeah. be, a, be a fairly significant player on a bunch of NBA title teams. That's cool. Yeah. Do you know how in, like, heist films, sometimes, like, the, the people will pull off the heist and the girlfriend's like, I can't believe you did that. I can't believe you risked it all and like you made you could have made her life horrible, but they got away with it. I feel like that's just what happened with Jordan. Like they just won. The reason Luke Longley's not mad is because they won. Mm -hmm. If they don't win, they don't get away with it. These people are not effusive. There's just no way. But winning in victory, you can justify all kinds of shit. I thought that so many times during the dog. It's such a good point. Like, what if they had lost to the Pacers in the 1980 <laughs> conference finals? And it and it kind of seemed like they were for a while, didn't it? it I mean, it just it really and in the moment, you know, it really did. And like, what if they just kind of blown another game to Utah and like that series got really hairy? Like Michael Jordan winning, having the last laugh in every way, is so crucial to his to everything about it. Not just the legacy, but like his just day to day happiness. I just can't mm -hmm. imagine if MJ. Well, we lost. The, the Jazz beat us four to two. I mean, that just seems so nuts. It's unbelievable. But you're right. It papers out. It, it makes the whole thing make sense in a way. Even though they won, the end of the documentary, before the whole Pearl Jam montage, Jordan says... Which you loved. <laughs> which I can't stand. Uh, no offense to Pearl Jam fans. Um, I think it was the wrong song choice. Um, <laughs> These are your notes. You're giving notes. Yeah. I'm giving notes. If, if Jason Hare called me up for notes, I, I would have. Uh, I would. That would have been my first pass. He says, "I can't. I still can't. I mean, I'm paraphrasing, but I still can't reconcile the fact that I didn't get to go for seven. Mm -hmm. And this is a grown man who's won six titles, who is one of the most famous, celebrated athletes of all time, and he cannot 
reconcile it now. Mm-hmm. That mentality, I just don't know if that's replicable. No, not in that way. I do think it's easy to say, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't necessarily want to challenge that, but it's easy. No, to no, say challenge that. it, Brian. No, let's challenge it. Here we go, Michael. You and me. <laughs> I do think it's easy to say that now when you didn't have to go out and play for the seventh, right? right? And risk going out on a bad note. Now he did come back with a wizard, so there was, you know, he was willing to risk something, right? But I just, it's a little bit like walking away after three. Like, I just think Michael Jordan had a sense of timing. Great timing. And I don't, you know, is there, is there a scenario where Jerry Krause brings back Phil Jackson, Scotty signs a huge contract with the Bulls, Rodman comes back, everybody comes back, let's rerun this and try to go win seven? Sure. But I also think Michael Jordan was like, this looks like a pretty good time. Why do you think he came back for that wizard season? It's something not talked about in the doc. It isn't. Unresolved competitive juices sloshing around in him. I also think he's like, he strikes me as one of those guys who's watching the NBA at that time. So I can play with these guys. And the thing is he kind of could, right? I mean, we look at that time pretty badly now, but he wasn't that bad. He put up solid numbers. He did. He could play with those guys, mm-hmm. but you know, it's just like, what's so interesting about Michael Jordan is there's no way LeBron James walks away in the middle of his career for most of two seasons to go do something else. Go play tight end for the Dallas Cowboys. As I saw that, that got a Twitter run again the other day. Like, it just did talk about random shoulder programming for the last dance. But, like, would, would imagine that, you know? So, I think there's something about Jordan, and we'll probably never know because they'll never admit it. But there is something about him that was like, okay, time to walk. Three titles, time to walk away for a bit. Three yeah. more titles, time to walk away for a bit. Now it's time to come back and do a little bit with the But you know what? This isn't going anywhere. I'm not going to be the old guy who's the 12th man. Time to walk away again. There's a sense of timing with him. Of course. He is a self-proclaimed blackjack fanatic. That is all of playing blackjack. <laughs> if you're good, you play a little, then you leave. Then you come back. You lose your money, probably. Maybe not. I mean, he's an addict. He's an, a gambling addict in every department of his life, it seems. And then Richard Esquinas writes a book about it, or whatever his uh, name is. <laughs> I remember when that came out. I was so I made my mom drive me to the bookstore to buy that book. Like the week <laughs> it came out. How old? That sounds so sick. That's that's why I'm doing this job now. It was that 93? I was like 15. Yeah. So I couldn't drive. I could not drive to Borders or wherever it was. And but I remember reading about it. I'm like, I gotta get this. This sounds awesome. <laughs> and it was this really cheap looking book and my mom's like, is that the one you want? Like, yeah. Michael and me, our gambling addiction, my cry for help. That is the book I want. That is the full title, by the way. Yeah. If, if you ever gave a kind of master class in journalism or talking to students about how you got into the industry, you need no, you need look no further than that origin story that in is. that moment. That would disqualify it as a master class, the moment <laughs> that I went to buy the Richard Esquinas book. But yes, that would be in there somewhere. No, no, their standards are dropping rapidly. <laughs> there we go. Yeah. I want to go to this one quote. It was brought up in this week's episode of Against the Rules with Michael Lewis, which is a really wonderful podcast. He brought up this quote by uh, Victor Frankel. And it said, uh, he said, what is to give light must endure burning. And this was talking about a coach. I think his name was Fitz, something that Michael Lewis has written about in a book of his, this kind of hard ass coach who's still there. His coach. I thought of Jordan when I heard that this week. I thought, oh yeah, that's it. That's the, it's one, it's seven words and it kind of, I couldn't put my 
finger on what I was trying to say about Jordan, but that seems to be it to me. Endure burning by whom in this in this case? All of the above. I mean, they said in the documentary, and Jason Harris, you know, gone to great lengths to talk about how Jordan had normal friends, but it looked like a pretty lonely existence to me. I mean, I'm, I'm no psychologist, but that looked pretty, pretty lonely. Mm-hmm. And I yeah. do think even the people that did like him feared him. And, uh, you know, the Machiavellian comparisons are fit. So burning, I don't know by who. You would know better than I do. He was burning people too, you know. It's funny. Yeah, and I do I do think who else knows how lonely he is on a daily basis, minute to minute basis. But he was, he went out of his way to be a member of that team and then so different from that team, right? And... um it's funny, like the way people talked about him now, because now we've, again, we've come around the bend where like him, what he did with Steve Kerr and BJ Armstrong is now part of the legend. It's no longer, it's not like, oh, remember when he punched Steve Kerr? That was amazing. I feel like people are talking about like old time football coaches now, you uh-huh. know, uh, when the bear did it, you know, those players, you know, that it's kind of just, it is a romance for this different era of sports, right? Because I just think about like today, whoever the B.J. Armstrong of today is, and I'm not really sure I have the moment I could think of who that would be, that guy would have been like a huge AAU player. That dude would have a ton of Instagram followers. And he just wouldn't accept that, right? Like, he'd just be like, I'm, I am not enduring this from anybody, you know? Spencer Dinwiddie? Okay. Dion Waiters? Okay. <laughs> no, not yeah, Dion Waiters. That, but that's like... But that's a good example, right? Like, Dion Waiters has more agency than B.J. Armstrong did, right? <laughs> And I told you follow. we'd get that quote out of Brian Curtis. I told you. There we go. You know, it's, it was inevitable. <laughs> Last question before we go, Brian. As someone actively covering sports and sports media, where are you at right now? It's May 19th, 2020 in this pandemic. Where are you at with the future of professional sports? Like how soon are we going to get them? Yeah, that, all of it, uh, the return. It was kind of bracing this weekend because I felt that they, they, feel, they felt so distant for a long time. And then all of a sudden this weekend watching NASCAR and a little bit of the skins game, it was like, Oh, stuff's back. And I, and this, that was kind of the first time I felt like I, I kind of feel like all this is going to come back sooner than we think in some form. And there's a long way to go with baseball, with economics, right? Basketball, economics and safety and everything else, the NFL, Lord knows all that stuff. But I'm now in this kind of mindset that we're going to get them, whether or not this is a good decision, we're going to get them sooner rather than later. I just really feel it just because there's so many factors pushing, you know, mostly economic factors, right? Pushing that to happen. Right. So I don't know. And I, and I don't think I would have said that like two weeks ago. Uh-huh. Well, I hope they come back safely and I hope you report about it safely inside that nice home of yours and not leave. <laughs> <laughs> not one of those press boxes just from here. Watch the TV. <laughs> <laughs> that would be a stretch for me. Yeah. Brian Curtis, thank you so much for doing it. Thanks a lot, Brian. Thank you guys for having me. That was fun. All right. Our pleasure. And there it is. Thank you so much for listening to the last dance after show. That was indeed our last dance. Uh, we want to give a special thanks this week to our two guests, Bill Cartwright and Brian Curtis. We also want to thank our wonderful editors. Malicious Wong and Meg Chen Sun. Without them, truly, this is not hyperbole. Without them, this podcast would have never happened. So we thank them for their work, their tireless contributions, 
uh, especially doing 10 episodes in five weeks. Uh, it takes a village to do so. And the village was those two people. So Melissa Zhuang, Meg Jensen, thank you very much. We also want to thank everyone who's come on this goddamn podcast. And it's been a whole lot of people. Bob Ryan, Carl Tart, Daniel Van Kirk, Brian Moses, Davey Rothbard, Adam McKay. We also got Sam Smith, Wesley Morris, Dr. Todd Boyd, Jason Hare, filmmakers like Steve James and Bill and Turner Ross, comedians like Morgan Murphy and Heidi Gardner, and of course this week's guests, Bill Cartwright and Brian Curtis. If you'd like to check out our 10-episode back catalog, you can do so on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, wherever you do your listening. Uh, if you have not checked out the rest of The Last Dance, you can do so on ESPN.com, ESPN The App. They will be re-airing the episodes intermittently over the next month. I think it drops on Netflix in June. I also want to thank, while we're here, Mr. David Villar for doing this show with me. Uh, it was his idea to do the podcast. On most days, I'm glad he brought us the idea. On other days, I hate that he brought me the idea because I meant doing 10 of these. <laughs> uh, but really, uh, David, it's been a goddamn joy to do this with you. In the absence of our twice-weekly basketball game, we created a twice-weekly podcast. I don't know where we go from here. Wow. I guess I'm going to have to get like a video game console and we're going to have to do, like, just do 2K. Oh, maybe. my God. I would love that. I would love that. Yeah. I got and an maybe Xbox we could do a one. podcast about our about our 2K. Ah. Uh, we'll, th we'll think about it. You're floating ideas. You're yes anding. That's all you're doing. Yeah, exactly. I would like to once again thank Meng Chen and Melissa. Honestly, can't say enough about how much work they did for us. And it was incredible work. Uh, so thank you, ladies, so much. I would also like to uh, thank my madre and uh, the use of Big Mix Studios, uh, which... Uh, was as well as her support, which was fantastic throughout the uh, tenure of this podcast. And then, of course, I would like to thank all of our guests and, of course, the one and only Sam Fragoso, who helped to make this all happen. Folks, of course, we would also like to refer you to Feeding America. Even though this is our last episode, uh, people are still hurting out there. And Feeding America is working to get nourishing food from farmers, manufacturers, and retailers to people in need. At the same time, they are also seeking to help the people they serve to build a path to a brighter, food-secure future. So please head on over to www.feedingamerica.org. Um, they're doing great work during this COVID-19 crisis that has been taxing and trying uh, for all of us. It's been nothing short of fantastic to do this for you all. And uh, stay safe out there, everyone. Before we go, shout out to Harrison Cameron and my father. After every podcast... Um, I'd call them up. They wouldn't always take my calls, but for the most part, they took my calls, bounced ideas around with me. So I thank them both. Help out the good people at Feeding America and everyone listening. We thank you very much. Stay safe wherever you are. Stay safe. Wash your hands thoroughly. We out. So long. <laughs> <laughs>